I've shared this with you before, but I feel like I need to say it again. The greatest song in the history of songs of all music genres ever in the history of period is uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Now, I recognize that in this particular service, there's a great many of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you're, you're children frankly, most of you, and, and don't understand the greatness of this song. And I've asked in previous services your parents, your grandparents perhaps, to gather you around the 8-track tape later on this afternoon, you don't even know what an 8-track tape is, and listen to the great Gordon Lightfoot, one of the greatest voices in human history, uh, sing to you about a shipwreck for 6 minutes and 28 seconds. Now, um, it's a song that, frankly, uh, lasts longer than the event probably did. On November the 10th, 1975, the American Great Lakes freighter, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, sank in a storm on Lake Superior that was so savage that it went down before it even had an opportunity to get off a distress signal, likely broke into on the surface and took down 29 men aboard. All were lost. The remains were never found. In, in fact, they probably died very, very quickly with the ship not ever able to get off. But in the song, Lightfoot imagines what it would have been like for those who might have lingered on the surface for a bit, struggling to stay alive before succumbing to the waves. And I get that the song is not everybody's cup of tea, and frankly, it's not my favorite song of all time, but I, I really do like the song, and I, I listen to it if it comes on. I can't, I can't change it or skip it. But he says this, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Now, say what you will about the song, and again, I get that it's not everyone's cup of tea, but that is a vividly accurate portrayal of the human response to waves of tragedy and trial. Where has the love of God gone? Now, folks, I'm a relentless optimist by nature, not blindly so, I don't think, but I really am very optimistic. I generally think that situations are never as bleak as they seem. I'm always pretty sure there's a ray of light, and I'm usually pretty good at finding it. But all of that has been tested these last few years. The, the institutions that have supported my life are crumbling. Our country is in the grip of political parties that are bent on tearing it apart by promoting fear and loathing of the other to the point that I fear what's coming. The denomination that nurtured me and educated me, the Southern Baptist Convention, has become an unrecognizable theological and ideological mess to the point that I really find myself not wanting much to do with it anymore. And frankly, there's been more than once over the past few years where I wondered whether our church would actually be able to survive the ugliness of the age in which we find ourselves. Heading into sabbatical last fall, if you'd asked me, do I have any final questions before leaving, I might have said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do have one. Where's the love of God gone? I don't recognize anything in my world anymore. I'm groaning the world around me. Is groaning, and it would have been very, very easy for me to ask, where has the love of God gone? Well, today, in one of the most triumphant passages of Scripture, certainly in Romans, but really in the entire Bible, we will learn that it's gone absolutely nowhere, that it's still here, and it's still as certain as it has ever been. 
And I'm sure that, as, as I've ever been, that if we will root ourselves deeply in what it is that we see on the pages of Scripture this morning, that it will frame our lives in ways that we all, frankly, need to have our lives framed. Today, we are going to see that there is nothing that can shake the love of God for His groaning people in a groaning world. And we will do that by looking at Romans chapter 8. Would you find Romans chapter 8 in your copy of God's Word, please? Romans is in the New Testament. You can find it, I think, pretty easily there. Romans, find chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 18. And we are going to see three things this morning. The first being this. In Christ, God's love is assured. God's love is assured. And Paul begins really by stating the obvious. He says some good, encouraging things, but in the core of what we're about to read, he's saying, look, I get that not everything is as it should be. Here's what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. This is why it groans. Not willingly was it subjected, but because of him who subjected it. He says in the midst of everything that he acknowledges that he gets that the world is groaning. And so as a literary device, he uses creation, personifies it, and says that it has been unwillingly subjected to futility. To reference to sin's effect, not just on human beings, but on the created order. We get that when Adam sinned, that we inherited that sin nature, and so we know all we have to do is look in the mirror and examine our lives and get that we wrestle with sin in our lives, that we struggle battling sin in our lives. We get that sin has cursed us, but what we lose sight of is that the curse of sin fell on all of creation. In fact, if you'll remember when Adam was being uh, removed from the garden after mankind had sinned, God said this to him in verse 17 of Genesis 3. He says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you must return. Do you see that it wasn't just Adam that was cursed? It wasn't just Eve that was cursed. The ground itself was cursed. I want you to think about creation As it was in the beginning, we were given a creation that was meant to supply for us bountifully all that we needed. It was to nurture us and it was to care for us. But now, because of sin, we have to to battle everything that we get for it just to sustain ourselves. And rather than nurture us and care for us, frequently at times, it seems like it's about to kill us. My kids just moved to Iowa, had been there no longer than five days, tornado warnings everywhere, you know. Iowa was trying to kill them, at least that's what my extended family thought. But that's the way the world is. The world is that way, not as it should be, because of the curse of sin. It has been subjected to futility, and it too awaits redemption. That's pretty bleak. (laughs) 
But Paul is not going to linger there because you see Paul too is an optimist. Paul is an optimist as a result of what he knows to be true about God. And so he reminds himself as verse 20 comes to a close that the curse that came upon creation and all of mankind was not without an element of hope. He understood in the verses before what I read from Genesis 3 earlier that God had given a promise to the world that the curse would one day be undone. That's why he says it was subjected in hope, at the end of verse 20, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He is remembering that that God said that there would come a child born of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and break sin's curse. So in the midst of our brokenness and in the midst of our broken world, He is calling on us to remember, to eagerly await the outcome of everything, which is not only our redemption, but a redemption of the world, the world that is trying to kill us literally, will suddenly become a world as it was originally intended to nurture us and care for us. And so he says in verse 24, for in this hope that the curse would be broken, we were saved. We put our faith in Jesus because of that. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it in patience. He's saying simply that if we, when we feel overwhelmed by the brokenness of the world, when we are groaning with the groaning of our world, to remember that things aren't as they were meant to be, but things will one day be restored to what they are meant to be. And because Jesus Christ has redeemed me, I can know for certain that He is redeeming this groaning world. And that, that feeds our patience. It's not a resigned acceptance as much as it is an active attitude that causes us to say, in light of what I know to be true, I will continue to push forward. In my life, I've run 10 half marathons, 10 very slow half marathons. And every one of them, I have the same crisis point. And at that crisis point, I give myself the same pep talk. It always comes at mile 10 when the odometer trips from single-digit miles run to double-digit miles run. And it suddenly occurs to me what a patently stupid thing it is to do to ever want to run that far but then I start thinking well at the end there'll be my family and a cheap t-shirt and a bottle of water and an orange (laughs) but I also tell myself I've only got three miles and I run three miles all the time I can do this Because I can run three miles. And it's that same way when we are thinking about giving up, looking at the groaning world in which we live. As we slog through, it can feel overwhelming. And when it does, Paul is saying to remind ourselves that the lifting of the curse under which the world, all of creation groans, which we ourselves groan, 
is just as certain as the salvation that we know we will experience in Christ Jesus. So he says the triumph of God's love in Christ is not in doubt. It's absolutely assured. And because it is assured, regardless of what you see that frightens you or read that angers you, we can know that we can endure. Next, he will tell us that in Christ, God's love is active. Active. And this may be the most important part of the message today because it has never been God's intention that in the midst of the groaning world, we just kind of slog it out on our own without His help, hoping for a reunion with God someday when He'll say, good job, you ran a race all by yourself and I didn't help you a bit and you finally made it to the finish line. That is not what salvation is. Paul reminds us that in Christ, God's love is not just promised to us someday. He says that in Christ, God's love is given to us. It is experienced by us in this life. It is active. And to show us how fully active the love of God through Christ is in our life, he drills down into two very important truths. The first is a truth about prayer, praying in a groaning world. Look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here He is speaking to the mind-blowing idea that when we pray and we say to God, you know, I saw that I saw that news about Ukraine, or I saw that news about the pandemic, or heard that news about race relations, or, or heard that news about politics, and I don't even know what to pray anymore. God says, I got you. I have you. I have you. When our prayers are half-hearted, literally half-hearted, when we're praying only because we know we're supposed to, but not really because we feel like it. In the midst of all this, these verses tell us that God has us. They tell us that our experience isn't new. Paul is writing this almost 2,000 years ago to a group of people who were still at that time living in a groaning world, frightened of persecution that may be coming to them. So our experience and our crises that we experience in this generation are not unique to our generation. People who have followed Jesus have always felt this. But second, these verses tell us that God's love is active in our prayer life to the point that the Spirit takes our halting and sometimes half-hearted prayers and perfects them in the ears of God. When kids are small, they will inevitably come to you at some point and say, I want to make something for mommy or daddy to eat. They'll come to you and say something like, I, I want to make mom, I want to make dad a cake, which is really just code, we get this, for I want to eat a piece of cake. But they will, they will say they want to do something nice. They want to do something for mom or for dad. And so what do you do? Well, you get out all the stuff and you pull a stool up to the counter and you let them stir, and you let them blend, and you let them pour. And then your spouse comes home, and, 
Your child will run to them and say, I made you a cake. And you and your spouse talk about how good it is. And you talk about how thankful you are that your child has made you a cake. But, you know, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't make that cake. You did. I mean, let's just be honest with one another. In fact, if you're like me, what you want to say, but don't because you're a reasonably adjusted human being. What you want to say, but don't, is, you know what? If I hadn't made that cake, that bite you just took probably would have killed you. I'm the one that made the cake. But you don't say that. Why? Because they had an express desire, but an inability. And you, because you love them, took that expressed desire and used your ability to take that thing they wanted to do to its end, its accomplishment. So we go to God. And we say, God, I want to bring this issue to you. And we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're saying. We sometimes don't even mean it. We're just doing it because you're supposed to, because I'm, I'm a Christian. And God sees that expressed desire and that inability and says, let me take that and make it good. And then it lands perfectly in his ears in a way that is a perfect reflection of his will that's how active the love of God is in Christ Jesus for us he's fixing our prayers he's active in what we even ask of him the first truth that Paul shares about God's active love through Christ in a fallen world is a truth about prayer but the next truth he shares is a truth about purpose And what may be the most widely quoted verses in the book of Romans, he says this in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, folks, I get that there's some rich, deep theological waters that we could swim in right there. But I instead want to focus on Paul's pastoral concern. What's he doing? He's reminding groaning Christians in a groaning world 1,800 years ago and groaning Christians in a groaning world today that the trauma of life for a follower of Jesus in a groaning world is never wasted because God uses it to fulfill His ultimate purpose for our lives, which is not to go to heaven when we die. His ultimate purpose for our lives is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, His ultimate purpose for our lives is for us to look like Jesus. Even the evil which frustrates us and burdens us and breaks our heart, has to bend to the will of God, who is sovereign over all things. I'll, I'll never forget something my son shared with me, and I know I've shared this before, but I just it roared back to me when I was reading this and preparing. When they were in the midst of their heartbreaking season of childlessness and and pregnancy loss, he said to me, Dad, God's sovereignty isn't a problem for me in this. 
It's what gives me hope. Why was he saying that? Well, he was saying that because he hurt. And, and Danny hurt. Months of, of not being able to conceive were followed by multiple miscarriages. Grandparents getting their hopes up. I mean, he, he hurt. We hurt. He was reminding himself, but also reminding his preacher dad that he has always said, his preacher dad, that God is sovereign over all things. And rather than lead him to ask the question, God, why did this happen? Or ask, God, where has your love gone? Caleb was saying, I'm not burdened in my real heartache because I know that God will bend all of this to His will for me and my family, which is for us to look like Jesus. Now, I get that that can be a hard truth to hear, especially if you're in the midst of hurting. I'll guarantee you that I've talked to people today who have carried in hurt that I have no idea exists. In fact, carry hurt that many people may not be aware of that exists in your life. And it can be hard to hear that God is, is, is going to use that in the life of a follower of Jesus to accomplish a glorious purpose, ultimate purpose, which is to look like Him. I get that that can be hard to hear. And so I don't say that lightly or callously. But our only alternative to that conclusion is hopelessness. The alternative alternative is, is shrugging your shoulders and at best saying, God must not be able to stop it, or at worst, shaking your fist at God and saying, where have you gone? In Christ, the love of God is active in the life of a believer who is caught up in the very real groaning of this world. And he doesn't expect you to merely abide in that truth so that one day the, the curse can be broken and everything can be good again. He is active in sustaining you in that truth, in the midst of it, through your prayer, making them right in his ears and taking what would otherwise destroy you, what our adversary meant to destroy you, and using it to bring you to his final goal for all of our lives who follow Jesus, which is to make us look like Jesus, which brings us to Paul's big finish in this chapter and really his big finish in this section of Romans, which teaches us that in Christ, God's love is available. And I might add, it is always available. Sometimes preachers need to shut up and read, and that's all I'm going to do here. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? These things that we groan under. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written... 
For your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, all of them, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of a groaning world, God's love in Christ is always available. You can't be separated from it by anything that you can imagine. You can't be cut off from it no matter the depth of the groaning around you or in you. So when you believe yourself to be drowning in an ocean of sorrows and confusion and hurt, remind yourself of the ocean that you're really in. The waves may be high, and the circumstances at times may be absolutely terrifying, but the ocean you swim in, and yes, sometimes flounder in, is not an ocean of sorrows and confusion and hurt. It is the ocean of God's love. This is the thought the late Rich Mullins had in mind when he penned the last verse to one of my favorite Gospel songs, the love of God. He says, here in this mess, I'm tested and made worthy, tossed about, but lifted up in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. That same love of God in Christ Jesus that is available to you to ensure you to enable you, to sustain you in the midst of difficulty is what the world around you needs. We're going to go out those doors in just a few minutes into a groaning, scared, angry, angry because they're scared world. And they will be crying, where has the love of God gone? And in fact, You won't have to look very hard for people who will make that same kind of proclamation. God's love is not available. He doesn't care. He's left us. So what do they need from you? What they don't need is your latest speculative take on science or parroted indoctrinated talking points from your favorite talking head. What they need is a confident proclamation from you in Christ that God's love assures us of the glories of where this groaning world is headed. That He is active and enabling us to endure in the meantime and is available for all who would call on the name of the Lord. They need to hear you say that and then they need to look you dead in the eye and be able to say, you know what, I believe that's true because I see it in you. I see it in you. You're not living a Pollyanna-ish kind of life where you're denying that There's trouble in the world. 
But in you, I see a conviction that God is with you. What the world needs is Jesus. That's what they need. And you and I, because of his goodness to us, can show it to them in this hurting world. Let's pray.